Chapter Nine of Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal by Sarah J. Richardson. Chapter Nine Alone with the Dead. The priest removed the peas from my limbs, and led me to a tomb under the chapel, where he left me with the consoling assurance that the dead would rise and eat me. This tomb was a large rectangular room, with shelves on three sides of it, on which were the coffins of priests and superiors who had died in the nunnery. On the floor under the shelves were large piles of human bones, dry and white, and some of them crumbling into dust. In the center of the room was a large tank of water, several feet in diameter, called St. Joseph's Well. It occupied the whole center of the room, leaving a very narrow pathway between that and the shelves, so narrow, indeed, that I found it impossible to sit down, and exceedingly difficult to walk or even stand still. I was obliged to hold firmly by the shelves to avoid slipping into the water which looked dark and deep. The priest said when he left me that if I fell in I would drown, for no one could take me out. Oh, how my heart thrilled with superstitious terror when I heard the key turn in the lock and realized that I was alone with the dead. And that was not the worst of it. They would rise and eat me. For a few hours I stood as though paralyzed with fear. A cold perspiration covered my trembling limbs as I watched those coffins with the most painful and serious apprehension. Every moment I expected the fearful catastrophe, and even wondered which part they would devour first, whether one would come alone and thus kill me by inches, or whether they would all rise at once and quickly make an end of me. I even imagined I could see the coffins move that I heard the dead groan and sigh, and even the sound of my own chattering teeth, I fancied to be a movement among the dry bones that lay at my feet. In the extremity of terror I shrieked aloud. But this I knew was utterly useless. Who would hear me? Or who would care if they did hear? I was surrounded by walls, that no sound could penetrate, and if it could, it would fall upon ears deaf to the agonizing cry for mercy, upon hearts that feel no sympathy for human woe. Some persons may be disposed to smile at this record of absurd and superstition's fear, but to me it was no laughing matter. Had not the priest said that the dead would rise and eat me, and did I not firmly believe that what he said was true? 
What, a priest tell a falsehood? Impossible. I thought it could not be. Yet as hour after hour passed away, and no harm came to me, I began to exercise my reason a little, and very soon came to the conclusion that the priests are not the immaculate, infallible beings I had been taught to believe. Cruel and hard-hearted I knew them to be, but I did not suspect them of falsehood. Hitherto I had supposed it was impossible for them to do wrong, or to err in judgment, all their cruel acts being done for the benefit of the soul, which in some inexplicable way was to be benefited by the sufferings of the body. Now, however, I began to question the truth of many things I had seen and heard, and ere long I lost all faith in them, or in the terrible system of bigotry, cruelty, and fraud, which they call religion. As the hours passed by, and my fears vanished before the calm light of reason, I gradually gained sufficient courage to enable me to examine the tomb, thinking that I might perchance discover the body of my old superior. For this purpose I accordingly commenced the circuit of the room, holding on by the shelves and making my way slowly forward. One coffin I succeeded in opening, but the sight of the corpse so frightened me I did not dare to open another. The room being brilliantly lighted, with two large spermaceti candles at one end, and a gas burner at the other, I was enabled to see every feature distinctly. One of the nuns informed me that none but priests and superiors are laid in that tomb. When these die in full communion with the church, the body is embalmed and placed here. But it sometimes happens that a priest or superior is found in the convent who does not believe all that is taught by the Church of Rome. They desire to investigate the subject, to seek for more light, more knowledge of the way of salvation by Christ. This, with the Romanists, is a great sin, and the poor hapless victim is at once placed under punishment. If they die in this condition, their bodies are cast out as heretics, but if they confess and receive absolution, they are placed in the tomb, but not embalmed. The flesh, of course, decays, and then the bones are thrown under the shelves. Never shall I forget how frightful those bones appeared to me, or the cold shudder that thrilled my frame at the sight of the numerous human skulls that lay scattered around. Twenty-four hours I spent in this abode of the dead, without rest or sleep. The attempt to obtain either would have been sheer madness, for the least misstep, the least unguarded motion, or a slight relaxation of the firm grasp 
by which I held on to the shelves, would have plunged me headlong into the dark water, from which escape would have been impossible. For thirty hours I had not tasted food, and my limbs, mangled and badly swollen, were so stiff with long standing, that when allowed to leave the tomb, I could hardly step. When the priest came to let me out, he seemed to think it necessary to say something to cover his attempt to deceive and frighten me, but he only made a bad matter worse. He said that after he left me he thought he would try me once more to see if I would not do my duty better. He had therefore willed the dead not to eat me, and they, obedient to his will, were compelled to let me alone. I did not reply to this absurd declaration, lest I should say something I ought not, and again incur his displeasure. Indeed, I was not expected to say anything unless I returned thanks for his unparalleled kindness, and I was not hypocrite enough for that. I suppose he thought I believed all he said, but he was greatly mistaken. If I began to doubt his word while in the tomb, this ridiculous pretense only served to add contempt to unbelief, and from that time I regarded him as a deceiver and a vile, unscrupulous, hypocritical pretender. It was with the greatest difficulty that I again made my way to the kitchen. I was never very strong, even when allowed my regular meals, for the quantity was altogether insufficient to satisfy the demands of nature, and now I had been so long without anything to eat, I was so weak and my limbs so stiff and swollen, I could hardly stand. I managed, however, to reach the kitchen, when I was immediately seated at the table and presented with a bowl of gruel. Oh, what a luxury it seemed to me, and how eagerly did I partake of it! It was soon gone, and I looked around for a further supply. Another nun, who sat at the table with me, with a bowl of gruel before her, noticed my disappointment when I saw that I was to have no more. She was a stranger to me, and so pale and emaciated, she looked more like a corpse than a living person. She had tasted a little of her gruel, but her stomach was too weak to retain it, and as soon as the superior left us, she took it up and poured the whole into my bowl making at the same time a gesture that gave me to understand that it was of no use to her, and she wished me to eat it. I did not wait for a second invitation, and she seemed pleased to see me accept it so readily. We dared not speak, but we had no difficulty in understanding each other. I had but just finished my gruel, when the superior came back and desired me to go upstairs and help tie a mad nun. I think she did this 
simply for the purpose of giving me a quiet lesson in convent life, and showing me the consequences of resistance or disobedience. She must have known that I was altogether incapable of giving the assistance she pretended to ask. But I followed her as fast as possible, and when she saw how difficult it was for me to get upstairs, she walked slowly and gave me all the time I wished for. She led me into a small room and closed the door. There I beheld a scene that called forth my warmest sympathy, and at the same time excited feelings of indignation that will never be subdued while reason retains her throne. In the center of the room sat a young girl who could not have been more than sixteen years old, and a face and form of such perfect symmetry, such surpassing beauty I never saw. She was divested of all her clothing, except one undergarment, and her hands and feet securely tied to the chair on which she sat. A priest stood beside her, and as we entered he bade us assist him in removing the beds from the bedstead. They then took the nun from her chair and laid her on the bed-cord. They desired me to assist them, but my heart failed me. I could not do it, for I was sure they were about to kill her, and as I gazed upon those calm, expressive features, so pale and sad, yet so perfectly beautiful, I felt that it would be sacrilege for me to raise my hand against nature's holiest and most exquisite work. I therefore assured them that I was too weak to render the assistance they required. At first they attempted to compel me to do it, but finding that I was really very weak and unwilling to use what strength I had, they at length permitted me to stand aside. When they extended the poor girl on the cord, she said very quietly, I am not mad, and you know that I am not. To this no answer was given, but they calmly proceeded with their fiendish work. One of them tied her feet, while the other fastened a rope across her neck in such a way that if she attempted to raise her head, it would strangle her. The rope was then fastened under the bed-cord and two or three times over her person. Her arms were extended and fastened in the same way. As she lay thus, like a lamb bound for the sacrifice, she looked up at her tormentors and said, Will the Lord permit me to die in this cruel way? The priest immediately exclaimed in an angry tone, Stop your talk, you madwoman! And turning to me, he bade me go back to the kitchen. It is probable he saw the impression on my mind was not just what they desired, therefore he hurried me away.
All this time the poor doomed nun submitted quietly to her fate. I suppose she thought it useless, yea, worse than useless to resist, for any effort she might make to escape would only provoke them, and they would torment her the more. I presume she thought her last hour had come, and the sooner she was out of her misery the better. As for me, my heart was so filled with terror, anguish, and pity for her, I could hardly obey the command to leave the room. I attempted to descend the stairs, but was obliged to go very slowly on account of the stiffness of my limbs, and before I reached the bottom of the first flight the priest and the superior came out into the hall. I heard them whispering together, and I paused to listen. This, I know, was wrong, but I could not help it, and I was so excited I did not realize what I was doing. My anxiety for that girl overpowered every other feeling. At first I could only hear the sound of their voices, but soon they spoke more distinctly, and I heard the words, What shall we do with her? She will never confess. In an audible tone of voice the other replied, We had better finish her. How those words thrilled my soul. I knew well enough that they designed to finish her, but to hear the purpose announced so coolly, it was horrible. Was there no way that I could save her? Must I stand there and know that a fellow creature was being murdered, that a young girl like myself, in all the freshness of youth and the fullness of health, was to be cut off in the very prime of life and numbered with the dead, hurried out of existence and plunged, unwept, unlamented into darkness and silence. She had friends, undoubtedly, but they would never be allowed to know her sad fate, never shed a tear upon her grave. I could not endure the thought. I felt that if I lingered there another moment I should be in danger of madness myself, for I could not help her. I could not prevent the consummation of their cruel purpose. I therefore hastened away and this was the last I ever heard of that poor nun. I had never seen her before, and as I did not see her clothes, I could not even tell whether she belonged to our nunnery or not. End of section 9